We are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, finishing our study on repentance and the fruit of it. And we're going to end with an illustration of what repentance done well looks like. I read one pastor say it takes wisdom to forgive. It takes more wisdom to repent. And what he meant was this. The forgiving one and the repenting one are often two different people. Sometimes I need to forgive. Sometimes I need to repent. Sometimes I need to be forgiven. And sometimes uh, someone else needs to be forgiven. But very often we can actually hinder the work from happening in the heart. And that is especially true when it comes to repentance. One of the reasons I like these old guys that I read, and I want you to like them, is because they saw themselves as doctors of the heart. They dealt with the human heart. That's what the aim of preaching, that's what the aim of theology always is. Um, and we understand theologically that, that the heart, like Jeremiah the prophet said, is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. It's a factory, Jesus said, from which people are defiled. It's not what you eat that defiles you. It's what comes out of the heart, Jesus said. And so the, the primary work of a pastor and the primary goal of any Christian is to deal with God in the heart, to be transformed there. And it is often a difficult work. And just like any other work, it can go well or it cannot go well. It can progress slowly or it can progress quickly. There's things we can do to help it, and there's things that we can do to hinder the work. And I have seen both personally in my own life, as well as in helping others, when it comes to repentance, there's a tendency in Christians to want to bail people out of, of that work truly taking place in their heart. Because embedded in the gospel is grace and mercy. And when you see somebody suffering through anguish over their sin, a tendency of the Christian is to want to go be merciful. But you can greatly hinder their progress in the faith if you go bail them out too quick before the work has a complete effect on them. What we're going to talk and look at today is essentially that. Paul dealt with the Corinthian church, who was, of all of his churches, the most grievous he had issue after issue after issue after issue with them. And they were varied issues. Some were theological. Some were personal. They questioned whether Paul was even apostle. Some were sinful issues. And that's really what this passage um, hinders on. So what we're going to look at this morning is what the situation was that caused Paul to write the words we're going to look at. And that's actually found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you want to mark that chapter real quick, you can. We'll summarize it briefly. But then we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at the fruit of repentance. Because from the situation Paul had to address in 1 Corinthians, where the church went from not repentant to repentant, he identified the things for him that he saw that said, yes, 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 repentance has taken place. Godly sorrow. But then I want to illustrate it with, uh, with the church at Ephesus of what, what does this look like? And it answers the question, why? Why do we need to repent? Last week, if you're here, you will remember repentance means, first and foremost, a change of mind. The change of action is the effect, the consequence of repentance. 
And it's important to get that down because if you think, first and foremost, repentance is changing your path, you might actually miss what repentance is. An alcoholic can change his habit of drinking without repenting. A drug addict can change his habit of drug abuse without repenting. Because those behaviors, those habits can be stopped without the mind and the heart ever being changed. And so repentance is always, first and foremost, a change of mind and heart. When that change of mind and heart happens, there will be fruit. And this is why it's important for the Christian to look for fruit. I can't tell what's going on in your heart and mind. I can't see that work. Only God can. But God does tell me there will be effects of what's going on in the heart and mind. And so watch for that. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know a tree by its fruit. A good tree will produce good fruit, a bad tree, bad fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. The same is true for repentance. When when repentance is taking place in the heart and mind, there will be effects outwardly that we can see. Okay, The situation that Paul was dealing with in 1 Corinthians 5 was a situation of sexual immorality. In verse 1, if you're there, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he writes this, It is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated, even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. I don't want to blunt the dramatic here. It was incest. A man is having a sexual relationship with his mother. And that kind of sexual sin was not even practiced or encouraged or tolerated, even among people who didn't know Christians. And yet within the church, somehow this kind of relationship was allowed and even encouraged in ways because they were arrogant about it. And their arrogance, he says, as we'll read in a minute, verse 2, and you are arrogant. Their arrogance flowed from a wrong understanding of what grace is. So many people have this idea of grace that it just tolerates sinful behavior. It does not. When sin is manifested among the body, you deal with it. And that's what Paul's going to do in 1 Corinthians 5. So it's arrogant to just have this idea of love and grace that when there's open sin among people, oh, we're just going to love them. No. We want to love them, but we want to see them holy. That's what true love is. So he says, you've become arrogant. Ought you not rather to have mourned? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. That's church discipline right there. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with, um, with, the pow- with this man, sorry, with the power of the Lord, uh, of our Lord Jesus. Gosh, I'm butchering that. Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And he goes on. So to summarize the situation, there's immorality that existed among them of such a degree, not even the Gentiles practiced. A man was having an ancestral relationship. They had become arrogant. They had accepted the sin within their church, and Paul reminds them, do you not know that this will spread, this kind of licentious idea? 
will spread. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says in verse 6. Their response should have been to mourn, not to be arrogant. And their response practically was to remove the one who was practicing this sin. When someone like this begins practicing this kind of sin openly, as a pastor, you go to that person and you try, you plead, like Matthew 18 talks about privately, for them to come back to the Lord, to turn from it. If they refuse and their hearts are hard, you take a witness. If they still refuse, you present it to the church and say, hey, this man is acting like a lost person. He's refusing to turn. And you disassociate fellowship. It's never for the purpose to just disfellowship. It's always restorative. Paul said it here. He said, I'm handing this person over to Satan that his flesh may be destroyed. But what? That his spirit might be saved. Sin will destroy you. That's the reality of it. That's why there's a need to turn. But when someone becomes unrepentant, my focus as a pastor is this was Paul's focus as a pastor of that church. If someone's going to refuse to turn from it, then I need to protect them. Because this sin will now affect you. Okay, This is probably the most difficult issue to a pastoral staff would ever have to face. Church discipline. It's unpopular culturally. It's not expected. Many people don't think the church has the authority to do this. And often it's not done right. And it's done with the wrong heart. But when it's done biblically, correctly, it can restore a person back to Christ and it can actually foster incredible spiritual growth when it's done right. So that's the situation and the context of, if you want to turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul had wrote that to them in his first letter. They were arrogant, they were accepting of it. Well, they came to the point where they listened to Paul, and they turned, they repented. And he's going to verify that repentance. So we're going to look at the fruit. There's seven things that Paul identifies here for us. And we're going to go through them. Some quickly, some we're going to take a little more time on. This will be the bulk of our sermon this morning, okay? So what is the fruit of repentance when someone is caught in sin and they truly deal with it from the Lord? What can someone expect to begin seeing in that person? There's a change, a dramatic change that happens. Begin reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 8 with me, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, which is 1 Corinthians, okay, that's what we just read. If I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Not just grief, grief with an aim. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That was our sermon last week. If you weren't here, I'll encourage you to go listen to it, because what we're focusing on this morning is verse 11. He says this, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. 
So let's go through these one by one. The first thing Paul identifies here in verse 11 is see what earnestness this godly grief produced in you. Earnestness here literally means longing desire. If you have a King James Version, the word they use is carefulness. But it's interesting, the root word of this earnestness means speed. Seems strange. The root word means speed. We use the word haste. Basically, what Paul is saying here is there was a concerted effort to make amends to whomever needed to be made amends to with speed. You see that? There's an earnestness about this. I've got to deal with this now. There was speed involved. When someone is repenting, in other words, they want to go to the person they've sinned against and make it right, and they want to do it quickly. There's a nagging on their hearts and their consciences to go to them. And there's no rest or peace until it's done. When someone has sinned against another, and you see the attitude of avoiding the person that was sinned against, this is lacking. Earnestness is lacking. When, when someone has been uh, in sin and they're avoiding the one they've sinned against, that's the contrast. Their hearts have not come to a, an earnestness about what they need to do. There's not that desire to quickly make amends that needs to change. When you've dealt with God and you want to make things right, man, you, you can't be, you can't have peace until it's done. That's the first thing, fruit of repentance. He goes on though. He says, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. The word in the Greek is apologia. It's apologetics. We get our words apologetics from it. It's to make a defense for. I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying here uh, they need to vindicate themselves as far as justify themselves. You know what I'm saying by that? Very often when somebody's in sin and they're confronted in it, they'll start giving all kinds of excuses of why they've done it. That's not what Paul's saying in vindicating yourself or making a defense of yourself. What Paul is saying here is that when we sin, there's an ownership of that sin, and we want to do what we must to clear our name, because we have sinned. The best illustration that came to my mind this week was Zacchaeus in, in Luke. Jesus came to visit Zacchaeus, who was a fraud, right? He was a Jew who ripped off all of his countrymen. And when Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have dinner with you tonight. Here's what Zacchaeus told the Lord. He said, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I've given to the poor. Now listen to this. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That's vindicating yourself. When you've done wrong to another... You want to clear your name. You don't want to give excuses of why you've done it, which is very often what we do, right? Well, you know, if you hadn't done this to me, I wouldn't have done that. That's just justifying yourself in a fleshly, carnal way. When you take ownership of sin, you really don't even consider what someone else may have done to you because there's this that I've done, and I am guilty of this. And someone else may be guilty of doing something to you, but your concern is, I've done this and I need to make it right. If I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to restore it fourfold. That's a vindication of yourself. So Zacchaeus really is a perfect illustration of what Paul's talking about here and an eagerness to clear yourself. 
But then he goes on, what indignation in uh, chapter 7, verse 11 there. This word indignation is a compound word that literally means much and grief. There's much grief. But there's the idea embedded in this grief is there's an anger at it. Now, uh, sometimes we translate this word as vexation, extreme emotional grief or, or anger involved. Um, in application and in context here, there's an anger at themselves for allowing this sin to happen, but there's also an anger at the individual for committing the sin and causing the trouble. This might be the hardest of the fruits of repentance to accept for us. So I want to spend the most time on this one. Because in the gospel, as I said earlier, there's this golden thread of mercy. We want to forgive, and we want to be forgiven, and we need to forgive and be forgiven. Right? And anger, indignation, seems to run contrary to what the gospel calls a Christian to be and do. But it's not. Paul said there's a sin, or there's an anger that will lead to sin, but there's also a righteous kind of anger. In fact, the psalmist says of God, God is angry with sinners every day. Does he hate them? No. Is he angry with them? Yes. Because sin is an extreme violation of who he is. So there's always present in Scripture an anger and hatred for sin. Yet I want you to distinguish that anger doesn't move forward toward the sinner. That's the distinction here. When it moves toward the, the one sinning, your anger, now it's an issue you need to deal with. It's never wrong to be angry with sin. In fact, I think this lacks in the church very often. Sin should make us angry. It should. We see terrible sins being committed in society, and we've become so um, desensitized to it, it just kind of rolls off us. When a little kid is molested, that should make us angry that this is happening. But as a Christian, we move forward in dealing with it in a just way. There's a righteous anger at sin, at injustices, at perversions. We're never to go toward wrath toward the offender. That's God's place, Romans chapter 12. We're never to judge them in the sense of condemning them. We, are, we ourselves should have been condemned. But to be angry at sin, that's what Paul's saying here. There's an indignation. Now, I want to I say this. Notice carefully that where true repentance is present within someone, there's always the grace of mercy and forgiveness. But listen to me here. Where repentance is absent in a person, there's an absence of grace in their life. And God withholds it until repentance happens. We just read that in Jeremiah chapter 6. Woe to those prophets who say, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They heal the wound of my people lightly. In other words, these false prophets want to promise Israel, Hey, you have peace with God, even though you're living in outright sin. And God says, No, you don't. There's no peace with me. I'm withholding it. Let me say it this way. In the Scriptures, God never gives grace to a person or people who won't repent. He does always offer grace to them, 
But he will never give grace to someone who refuses to turn. There's not a single instance in Scripture where he gives grace to someone who refuses to turn. That's important. The offer is there. And the church, as a church, when someone is in sin, what do we do? You offer it undiscriminately to people because it's awesome. But we can hinder people from truly repenting when we give it before they've even turned. Because the love of that sin will still be embedded in their heart. We do people a disservice in their repenting, in this process they've got to work through, when we give grace before their hearts have become angry. On the other hand, when you see the brokenness, when you see these fruits beginning to be manifested in someone's life, who should be the first one there offering grace? The church. The church. As I said, this is probably the hardest of the fruits for us to wrestle with. Because we want to help people. And we understand, man, God's grace is amazing. But we've also got to let that sin be broken in them. I, I said last week in our sermon, part of why repentance is necessary in people is because naturally our carnal hearts love sin. And what repentance does is it makes sin bitter to us. Now we can taste it and then pull back rather than letting that bitterness really sink in. Sin destroys us. Sin kills us. It destroys our fellowship with the Lord. It destroys our fellowship with each other. Just look at the world, guys, and see how chaotic and evil it is, how marriages are destroyed, how political relationships are destroyed. Sin destroys. And we've got to come to the place where we hate it. How does that happen? Through repentance. It makes it bitter. We see the error and we don't want it anymore. And man, when that happens, the church has the treasure that the repenting person needs. The healing oil. Now you're ready for it. Now you're ready for it. So moving on, Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 7.11, what earnestness, what eagerness, what indignation. Then he says, what fear. The word is also translated as terror. In fact, the same word when, when the apostles saw Jesus walking on the water and they became terrified, thinking it was a ghost. It's the same word. And what I think it's a re refer uh, referring to, they were fearful, is that they... They saw how, um, how their own acceptance of this sin nearly destroyed them. How it, it had disastrous consequences on their spiritual walk with God, as well as their spiritual father in the faith, Paul. We can become so passive towards sin. One of the things that happens when we turn is that we fear that happening again. Many of us have been through situations where things have fallen apart. And we've learned some important lessons from that. And we fear how bad it could get. We don't want to go back to that. There's often one thing I think that lacks in today's society concerning sin. It's fear. It's fear. You can, it's not hard to look into a culture, even in church cultures, and see how sin is just kind of reveled in. It's boasted in. It's done so easily. It's done so fearlessly. Really. It really presents the opposite of one who's dealt with God with their sin. 
should show. Every time in Scripture God deals with sin, it produces fear in people. Let me read a couple passages. Acts chapter 5, verse 11. It's with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to God about their giving and dropped down dead. The result was great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of those things. So it created fear in the church and outside the church. In other words, it kept people who would want to hold on to their sin yet be a part of the church. It kept them from joining. Gosh, if I join the church and yet I'm going to continue living in sin, I might drop down dead. I don't want that. In other words, it made them count the cost, which is what the cross should do. The call to Christ is a call to abandon these things. Come out of her and touch no unclean thing, the Lord says. There's a fear present. In Acts 19, 17, we're going to see this in a minute. It's the church of, this is the sons of Sceva who tried to perform an exorcism on, on a man. Remember that? The demon overcame all of them. It said, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So I think generally fear lacks within the church today, but yet fear has tremendous benefits. And I want to, I want to show you this so that we think of it rightly. Fear has tremendous benefits spiritually in guarding our hearts from performing it. And we see this in the physical world. For instance, a fear of being burned prevents our children from touching the oven, right? A fear of being hit by a car causes us to look both ways when we cross the street. A fear of accidentally shooting yourself with a gun causes you to what? Make sure you handle it gently, correctly. Fear is good when it keeps you from sin. Same is true spiritually. Fear of sin will lead us to be cautious in situations and to flee from its presence. Even if we have to be humiliated. Remember Joseph, when Potiphar's wife kept trying to get him into an adulterous relationship. She takes a hold of Joseph and he flees out in the presence of everyone naked. Even if we have to be humiliated and incur the disdain, the laughter even, of the world, we would gain the favor of God. And Joseph is that illustration. He went to prison for it, but what did God do? He exalted him as ruler over Egypt. So fear, there's a fear of sin, fear of going back to that thing that caused so much grief. Then he says, what longing? Now this word is very similar to a word Paul already used. Longing here means earnest or vehement desire. It's a burning desire. It's different from earnestness, the first word we looked at, in that it focuses more on the emotion of it. Where the first word focused on speed. Deal with it quickly. But when repentance is taking place in someone, there's a, there's a longing, a vehement, burning desire to do it. They don't treat their sin, in other words, indifferently. They don't make excuses for it. It's not just a second thought. It's a consuming thought that I have to deal with this. We want to long and walk once again with those people we've offended. We want to walk with God in the cool of the garden, so to speak, where that fellowship has now been broken because of something I may have done. There's a vehement desire to regain what was lost. He goes on, he says, what zeal. 
He says, zeal, uh, where zeal for sin once existed, now repentance produces zeal for what is right. You see the change of heart there. Many people are zealous for their pet sins, whatever it might be. When repentance is taking place, it turns our heart and our minds toward being zealous for what's right, whatever it costs me, whatever I may have to shed. Aristotle said that this word zeal has grief associated with it, not because uh, another person has some good that the zealot doesn't, but because the zealous one does not have some good and they seek to supply themselves with it. In other words, the, the zealous one sees that they're deficient in something. They're lacking something in their life and they're zealous to gain what is lacking. We often think of a zealot in, in other terms, like a political zealot, right? Simon the Zealot, one of the twelve. That's really a reversal of what zeal should be. Zeal has grief because it sh- it, it, you see, I'm lacking something in my character. There's a lack of love. There's a lack of gentleness. There's a lack of faithfulness, whatever it might be. And you see that lack and you're zealous to supply your faith with it. That's what Peter actually says. Okay? So where a zeal for sin once existed, now there's a zeal for what is right. It motivates you and pushes you to seek God to gain those deficiencies in your life. Then the last thing he says is what punishment? What punishment? This includes self-punishment and the punishment of the offender, potentially, are both in view here. So we talked about this. Biblical discipline is never easy, but it is scriptural. I pray I never have to do it, honestly. I pray that we walk with the Lord and it never gets to that point. But sometimes it will happen. I just want us to see, however, when done correctly, Punishment is one of the greatest means of grace because it restores a person back to true fellowship. But I also want to talk about, it's not just punishment of another. Our minds, I think, naturally go toward punishing someone else who sinned. The Corinthian church here punished themselves first. And that's important. It's the same principle as Jesus saying, take the log out of your eye before you take the splinter out of someone else's. You might need to remove a splinter, yes, but you've got something here, and that's what you should focus on first. The Corinthian church did that. They had erred greatly in their attitude toward this man who'd been having an ancestral relationship, and they punished themselves before they dealt with him. In fact, so much so, I want you to go... Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, real quick with me. They took Paul's words to heart in removing that man from fellowship. They turned and dealt with what they should have been doing the whole time. So zealous were they to turn, Paul had to actually say, okay, okay, back off. <laughs> You've done what you should have done. Let's read it together. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, He says, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. Now, verse 6 is the key. This is talking about what we read read about in 1 Corinthians 5, the ancestral relationship. He says this, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. 
So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. See, what had happened was they had been entertaining this sin and this man in their fellowship. Paul says, you need to remove him and get him out. So they removed him and got him out, but then they wouldn't let him back in when he did turn, when he did get out of his sin. And Paul has to correct him again and say, okay, you've punished him enough. Don't allow him to become overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. That's, that's what church discipline is meant to do. It causes this man to get out of his sin. And who's the first one who should go to that repenting person? The church. And help him back now. So they had to be corrected again. What punishment? Yes, it's enough. But verse 8 or sorry, the eighth point is verse uh, 11, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul makes an incredible statement here. At the end of verse 11, at every point you have proved yourselves, what? Innocent in the matter. Does that word strike anybody as strange or out of place? Paul's dealing with their sin. And yet he turns around and says, you've proven yourself innocent. I want you to see this because this is exactly what the gospel does to repenting people. You might be guilty of the most heinous sins you could think of. When biblically you repent rightly, you know what God tells you? Innocent. That's justification by faith. That's the power of the gospel. And this is why repentance is part of its condition. Believe and repent. Because when you deal with your sin, God says, righteous, righteous, righteous. How many of you would take that invitation when you have a guilty conscience and you know the things you've done for God to say, forgiven, innocent. The blood of Christ has paid for that new creation. I'd take that. That's the gospel. And that's why Paul can confidently say, you've repented in a way, it's done right, you're innocent. It's done. It's over. Your sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. Let's move on. You see that? That is awesome. That's why dealing with repentance is a grace. It's a good. It's something that the old paths dealt with all the time, and it's something that the new generation tries to avoid. I wonder if that's why we're anemic and sick in the church. This is a rich study. I want to illustrate to end the sermon with what it looks like, and really to answer the question, why? Okay, why? Why go through this? Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. This chapter, when I taught through Acts last year, really stuck out and I I was blown away by it. Now, I want to remind us, in our passage in 2 Corinthians 7, as well as in Acts 19 here, Paul's actually um, dealing with repentance on a church-wide scale. But everything we're seeing is, is, in principle, the same for an individual. Okay? This really is a picture of the repenting church in Acts 19. That's why I think repentance is a discipline that Christians need to do, and sometimes churches in their entirety need to do together. Okay? 
Ephesus, the church at Ephesus had been established. It was a good church. It was a growing church. But there were still things that they were hanging on to that were sinful. We read the account of uh, the sons, seven sons of Sceva, verse 14 of Acts 19. It says, the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this uh, exorcism. They were trying to. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. As we read, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. But then in verse 18, as this was happening, it says also, Many of those who were now believers, these are believers, okay? Many of the people at Ephesus who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So it's clear these were believers. They had witnessed this failed exorcism, this, this experience in, in project and spiritism, right? When they saw that the sons of Sceva were overcome by this evil spirit, you know what happened to them? They said, we need to bring something to light. We've come to faith in Jesus, but we've still been practicing our own magic arts. We've held on to this. And we see from that example, this is useless. So they came, they brought it to the light, they divulged it. And they divulged it in front of everyone. They divulged it in front of the church, they divulged it in front of the entire town of Ephesus, so much so they brought all their books together in the town square and lit them up for everyone to see. Now here's an important principle, and, and this is one of the main points here at the end I want you to get. The Ephesian church here confesses publicly because their, their particular sin was a very public sin. In other words, these, for, these believers formerly practiced witchcraft. They would be paid by people in Ephesus to do spells and incantations and all this stuff. So all the residents of Ephesus knew they had dabbled in all this spiritism. And so their repentance needed to be very public. Why? Because their sin was a very public sin. Does that make sense? I don't think you can take that principle, however, and apply it in every case. I think there's times sin... I think this, in every case, sin needs to be confessed. In some cases, it only might need to be confessed to one person, maybe to a small group of people. It might be the case where your sin does need to be publicly exposed because it's affected the public and it's ruined your witness publicly. I think that's the case very often in cases of adultery, right? But it's not a principle that you can just apply carte blanche. Here they, they repented very publicly. They came confessing and divulging their practices. So I don't think you can apply that across the board, but I do think it's a valid principle. 
The principle is this, sin needs to be confessed. One of my old authors I read, an old pastor, F.W. Robertson, said this, a sin that's left covered up is the soil out of which fresh sin will grow. I like that. A sin that's left covered up is the soil out of which fresh sin will grow. I made the comment last week that when we confess our sin and bring it to the light, that's practically how we begin to take up our cross and crucify the flesh. Because it's painful. It's hard. The, the pride of us is put to shame. Right? But when we die to self, what's the Lord say? Then we begin to live to Him. Then we begin to bear fruit. So the whole business of repentance is shed always in a good light. The result of this, and this answers the question, why? Why do we need to be confessing? Why do we need to be a repenting church? The why is in verse 20. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let me define these two words for you, and you'll see. The word increase literally means whole. The idea that, that Luke has here in writing this with, with translating it as increase, is that the word of the Lord is becoming what it should be in you. The wholeness of the word is now being formed. When we hold on to sin in our life, the work of the word will be fragmented. It won't have its completeness in you. Do you see that? Secondly, he says, and it prevailed mightily. The word prevail is an awesome word. It, it literally means it removes obstacles so that it can have its full effect. In fact, Philippians 4.13, you know the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The word in that verse, do, is actually prevail. I can prevail in all things through Christ who strengthens me. Prevailing means this, you remove any obstacle in your life that would inhibit progress so that the work of the Lord may have its full, whole effect. That's the why of, of why repentance is necessary for us. Every one of us is going to sin, church. We do. It's what we do when we sin that matters. There's grace provided. In fact, where our sin abounds, Paul wrote what? His grace did much more abound. His grace is sufficient for every sin you might struggle with. Every stronghold in your life, His grace has a matching color. That's not the problem. We fail to progress in the faith because we're not dealing with sin. That's why. It's not because His grace is insufficient. It's because we're not repenting in a godly way. Our sorrow might be a worldly sorrow, Paul said, not a godly sorrow. Why repentance needs to happen is because is it not our desire at Waypoint to want to become who God wants us to be? I hope it is. If so, we've got to understand there's going to be times repentance is necessary in my life. It might be necessary as a pastor for me to repent to some of you. And I hope I practice that. It might be necessary for you to repent to someone else. And I hope we practice that. Our goal at this church is to understand the gospel well enough to see there's grace provided for us. So that the climate created here, the culture created in our church, is we're a church who takes sin seriously, and we also understand that we can be forgiven. 
We hate sin. We fear sin. We treat it seriously. We don't entertain it. But at the same time, when someone falls, we're the first people there to help. When they're broken over what they've done, we're the ones running to help. We're going to be the person on the floor crying our eyes out, and we're going to be the person at times running to that person. We're going to be both. And in all that Ephesus, the word of the Lord increased and prevailed because of that. We're also going to have a time of prayer um, for our missionaries. I was going to do this at the beginning, but we're trying to make it a habit here at Waypoint to pray for our missionary team at the beginning of the month. Before we pray for them, I want you to go before the Lord and just have a time of prayer with Him. If there's things in your heart that you need to confess and deal with, this is the time to do that. His grace is sufficient for you. He will meet you in your weakness. In fact, the first beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. When you recognize the poverty of spirit that you have, Blessed are you. None of us have our act together in the sense. So go before the Lord and then we'll take time to pray for our missionaries. Father God, we just want to stop and pause and thank you that you're rich in grace, you're rich in mercy. Father, we read in the scripture that Paul told the Corinthians, I rejoice over you. I don't regret making you sorrow because I see that the sorrow you had led to repentance and that to salvation. There's no regret in that. Paul rejoiced because they were made well. We read in the Gospel of Luke that the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. They throw a party in heaven over one sinner who says, you know what? The choices I've made and the course that I've chosen for my life has not ended up well. And my mind has been changed about my decisions. I'm turning to the Lord. Father, your offer of grace is universal. Yet you reserve the giving of it for those who turn to you. Paul said it this way, you are the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Potentially, Lord, your grace is sufficient for all. Actually, it's sufficient for those who would trust you who would come to you and taste and see, as the psalmist said, that the Lord is good. Father, that now when we have sin in our life, you don't meet us in wrath, you meet us in mercy. Because the wrath was poured out on Christ. The punishment was satisfied. Your anger towards sin, he took the full brunt of it. So that he now can look at you and be compassionate and merciful. Deal with you in discipline, but not in condemnation. Father, I pray for any who are here who are dealing with this, whether they need to come to faith, Lord, and turn to you for salvation, or whether they're just a Christian who's been struggling. Father, I pray you give them grace to repent well, to let that work have its full effect, Father to plow up the fallow ground of their heart, as Jeremiah said, to rend their heart, tear in half their heart and not their garments. Father, that the work of transformation would be deep. I pray for that, Lord. I know it hurts. I know it's uncomfortable and painful at the time, but Lord, 
we've also tasted the sweet peacefulness that it brings to the troubled conscience.